Our sermon today comes from the 1st Peter chapter 5 towards the end of your Bibles, 1st Peter chapter 5. We're going to read um, 6 through 9 eventually. And the title of the sermon is called Satan's Schemes. Satan's schemes, or maybe Satan's devices, or Satan's snares. Two months ago when I started this sermon series called Sermons for This Stream, what I had in mind was this feeling that as a church we're in this raft, we're coming down a river and we're turning a bend, and it feels a little bit like the water behind is or was more calm than the water ahead. Feels like the, the water ahead feels like white water, so that's why we had that picture of that fast running stream over these rocks that creates white water. And whether it's navigating the disruptions and opinions of the coronavirus, the discussions that revolve around race, justice, abortion, immigration, LGBTQ, the election, the economy. All these things uh, feel like whitewater that, that are co- constantly churning up in our culture. And as an individual and also as a church, we need to know, well, how, how, do, how can we successfully navigate this whitewater? The whitewater and river gives you an opportunity to really uh, do something dynamic that maybe you wouldn't have done before on, a, on the peaceful part. But also, it's also quite a dangerous part of the river where you could get bounced out, you could drown white water. I mentioned at our annual leadership meeting, we have this meeting once a year, usually in August or September, elders, staff, deacons, a few other folks, that if at the end of this year, when I say that, I think June 1st, end of this school ministry year as we think about it here, if we could just remain united, I would say that'd be a successful year. And I I don't know if I would have said that many other years, but all this cultural upheaval causes people to have a variety of opinions and and get engaged in things, and and of course, uh, then at at different times it becomes more important, and and it can bounce people off in a way, and so that's my primary goal, and I'm thankful that I'm not the first preacher to be concerned about their congregation colliding with the the white water of the culture, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they, they both personally experience their own white water moments. And as they write these letters in the New Testament, they're, they're writing back to a congregation, to a group of people that they know and say, hey, here I am. I've had this experience. I've seen this happen. I don't, I don't want us. I don't want you to get bounced out when the, the white water of the first century comes your way. So, one of their primary concerns is Satan's schemes. So, I want to read a couple of verses from uh, the New Testament to you, and then we'll land in 1 Peter chapter 5. First passage is 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Anyone whom you have forgiven, I also forgive. This is Paul talking to his congregation in uh, Corinth. Whatever I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So there's a problem in this church in that there's been some kind of church discipline 
some kind of disappointment, some kind of engagement relationally that's caused an upheaval, at least in some of the people in the church. And he's trying to help them understand this upheaval that you need to work through it to forgive because otherwise, uh, he says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. See, when, when relational disruption happens, it's a great moment for Satan to come in uh, because you're distracted in some way and, and, and he comes in and he has his designs and Paul's aware of those designs. Ephesians chapter 6, a, a passage that many of us might be familiar with talking about the whole armor of God and Paul's talking back to this church in Ephesus and he says in the very closing words of his letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why are we going to put that whole armor on? Well, he tells us, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You're going to need this whole armor because we have an adversary, one who comes in and tries to disrupt, has designs, has schemes on our lives, on our church, on our families. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul's Last letter to his uh, young protege, Timothy. He says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. Just, just let that wash over your, your mind and your heart just for a moment. He's not talking just to Timothy. He's talking to every believer. You're the Lord's servant. Don't, don't be quarrelsome kind be kind whether you're on Twitter or on Facebook or face to face he goes on to say that if you have correcting that needs to be done with opponents do it in gentleness God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him See, that this dis- disruption in the culture has caused a quarrelsome spirit, and this quarrelsome spirit has ensnared certain people. And so he's telling Timothy, you've got to be careful how you, how you enter into these dialogues. You've got to do it with a, a kindness, a gentleness, even where there's correction that needs to be offered. First Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under, critical word, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time, God may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on God because He cares for you. Be, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone devour, to devour. Verse 9, resist. Resist him. Resist him. Satan's design, Satan's scheme, Satan's snares, all, all designed to devour your life, to devour your soul. And there's a wonderful little book written by Thomas Brooks, a, a pastor, and he titled this book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. So it's a small little book, and he just talks about, hey, there's all kinds of snares, there's all kinds of 
devices. There's all kinds of schemes, and we've got to be aware of those, and then we have to have remedies for those. And here's what he says in the opening of that book. There are four prime things which should be first and most studied. For every believer, these are sort of the first four steps out of the gate. These are the things that form a foundation, according to Thomas. Our dearest Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to study Him. You've got to know Him. Secondly, the Scriptures. How do you know about Jesus? Primarily through the Scriptures. Third, your own heart. You've got to study your own heart. And fourth, Satan's schemes. Satan's devices. These are the four sort of corners of your house. You've got to know these things. If you cast off the study of these, Brooks says, you cannot be safe here or happy thereafter. The Apostle Peter, he had firsthand experience in dealing with the consequences of not knowing his own heart, of not understanding the strength of his adversary. So Peter closes his letter with verse 8, beware, beware. See, I I wasn't aware as I should have been, Peter is saying. I got ensnared. I overestimated myself, my strength. I underestimated the the strength of the enemy. So I want you to beware. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's trying to devour people and he doesn't want his congregation to be devoured. And neither do I. I asked this question to the staff and the elders uh, maybe about a month ago. And I asked this question and I'm asking you now. What word or phrase would you use that that describes Satan's current schemes and designs to disrupt and devour today? You, You see it, but what phrases, what words would you use that you think, this is how Satan's operating, these are his schemes right now. Here are a few that were given by the leaders of the church. Fear apathy, impulsive judgments, defensiveness, disunity, despair, distrust, lack of charity, a willingness to assume the worst, exhaustion, bitterness, isolation, self-righteousness that comes out this way. There's only one Christian way to respond to this situation. Confusion, doubt, suspicion about others, suspicion about God. That's quite a list. Quite a list of schemes, quite a list of devices. Thomas Brooks, again, he writes this, Satan has devices to destroy the great and honorable, the wise and the learned, the blind and the ignorant, the rich and the poor, the aged and the young, the real and the nominal saint. A man may as well number the sands of the sea as to reckon up all the devices of Satan. So let's take a a full stop here. Try to make an assessment of yourself. And it's some danger in that. But instead of waiting for that moment later today that you think you'll have a quiet moment, one of Satan's schemes is to make sure you don't actually have a quiet moment to think about it. Let's take a moment here and just ask, if we were going to personally apply Brooks's words, have you given prime time to knowing Christ and His Word? Prime time. Have you really examined your own heart? Do you know your heart? Do you know its strengths and weaknesses? 
you know Satan's devices? What are the things that or people or ways he comes in to cause distraction for your soul? Tries to devour. Do you know those things? See, Peter thought he knew himself, but he didn't. So we have to be careful when we give ourselves a assessment. Is there some device that's being used even now that's ensnared your soul? You're ensnared right now. Bear caught in a trap. You can't seem to get away. So as I thought about this and read through the book, I thought, gosh, there's so many different devices and remedies for this that I thought I would have four or five to give you. And after I got through with two, my sermon ran out of paper. And so I thought, I'll just give you these two and you can buy the book and look at the other ones. But here is what I would say Peter is saying from chapter 5. First, in order to not get devoured, we must exercise sober-minded resistance. Verses 8 and 9. If we're not going to get devoured, there is a, an adversary. He's prowling around and so frequently, like a lion, you don't realize you're going to get devoured until it's too late. He doesn't make a lot of noise when he's sneaking up on you. And you look and go, hey, I'm just about ready to get devoured. That's what happens with sin. And so you have to have a sober-minded resistance. Peter knows like alcohol clouds your judgment, sin clouds your self-assessment. How does he know this? Oh, he's had first-hand experience. You remember when Peter stood up at the Last Supper and he was going to inform Jesus of something? Now, just doing that all by yourself. You just know that's a bad start, right? Jesus, let me inform you of something. That's not humbling yourself. And he's not only going to inform Jesus of something, he's going to notify all the other guys in the room. Hey, Jesus, even if everyone leaves, guess what? I got your back. I'm not going to leave. Even if all these other saps over here do, and they're kind of... Uh, weak need I'm not I'm not that person I'm going to be there see Peter he understands he gave a bad self-assessment he, he didn't really consider the strength of his adversary and, and what bitter words these were for Peter to have to chew and swallow on just a few days later one great place to witness a successful, sober-minded resistance. Not in the upper room with Peter, but it's in Daniel. Remember Daniel, especially his three friends in chapter 1. Daniel is, part, is an Israelite man. He's a young man. He's probably 18 to 22, somewhere in that age group. And, and Israel has walked away from God and prophet after prophet has come back to Israel and say, you've gotten off the path. You, you're not, you don't know who Jesus is or you don't know who God is. You're not following after his word. Come back. And they refuse to come back. And as part of a disciplinary me measure, God has this great big kingdom up north of Israel called Babylon to invade. And their king is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of reaches down into this sock of Israel and pulls out all the treasure, all the gold, all the silver, anything that has you know material value. He pulls it back into his own kingdom, but he doesn't leave his grasp just with that. He pulls out all the personal treasure, meaning 
all the academically gifted students. I'm, I'm going to reach down and I'm going to get a group of young people who are all still very pliable and I'm going to bring them out. I'm just going to get the academically gifted, the accelerated class of people, the people who go to the right universities. I'm going to pull them back out. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's so, he's so smart. He pulls out these people. The four that we're most familiar with are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sounds like a Babylonian law firm. You know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego representing you today. Well, he pulls these four young men, again, maybe they're 18, 19, 20. And he brings these four students into Babylon. And he's not just attempting to move, this is key, he's not just attempting to move their bodies from one country to another. He's trying to attempt to move their souls from one country to another. It's not enough that they just get physically displaced. They've got to be mentally, emotionally displaced away from God. And this is how he does it. Very, very wise. He takes these young men and the first thing he does is he detaches them from their family and puts them in a very comfortable place. You get whatever you want to eat from the king's table. You get the best professors. You get the most comfortable living environment. And while these young men are detached from their families, being fed all they want, every need being met, he's changing their language, and he's changing their mindset, and he's changing the position of their soul. And his hope, again, very cagey, is that when he begins to bring the peasant class up from Israel, these, these young men, now they're going to have changed their position, but they're still Israelites, and they're going to be able to convince this group down here to follow after Nebuchadnezzar. Very, very smart. I mean, what a scheme to change a nation. But these four men, man, these are four men you want to find as your friend. These are the people that you want to have surrounding you when the, the, the going gets tough. These four men, they're wise beyond their years. They're sober-minded. They're, they're able to make a correct self-assessment. They quickly realize that if they don't draw some kind of lines of bounce, some kind of lines of resistance, some kind of boundaries, they're going to be sucked in. They're going to be ensnared by Babylon. And what's the very first line that they draw? Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. But Daniel and his friends resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food or his drink. Instead, we just want vegetables and water. Daniel understands. Daniel and his friends understand that the very first boundary has got to be a boundary of physical appetites. A boundary of physical appetites. So he begins to draw this boundary begins to train his appetites so that when the king presents to Daniel and these other three young men other kinds of appetites, other things that appeal to something other than your stomach but look good, they've trained their appetites. So they can say no to their physical appetite here when another appetite comes along. They've trained themselves to say, we can say no 
to that. Very smart, very smart. See, it's not the Daniel diet that's special here, which is what we tried to do with it as a church. It's not the Daniel diet that's special here. It's the Daniel boundary that's special here. He drew a boundary to say, I'm not going to go past this boundary because I know I'm going to have to live inside other boundaries that are coming my way. It's like he's building a muscle. And he's starting with this training of this appetite so that when other appetites come his way, he can resist. This is so humble, these men. They don't look at themselves and look at each other and say, ah, we can do it. I mean, we can just act on the spot. I mean, we know what's right and wrong. And when this appetite comes, we just say no to it. You know what? You can't do that most of the time. You've got to have something that's trained. And so they know it. They, they know their youthful appetites might jump out of the boundary on the spot. So they begin to train. They begin to have a trained capacity to resist. They have a sober-minded resistance. So let me just ask you. Let me ask myself. Do you have a trained resistance? Are you training your appetites even right now in one area with the knowledge that your ability to say yes and no in one area is going to help your ability to say yes and no in another area? Or just hoping that you're going to on the spot be able to make the right kind of decision? Peter knows there's this first century white water that's rushing into his, his church and he wants them to be aware to be alert to Satan's schemes and to begin to train your appetites. One more obvious point here is that these men are fighting together, uh, which it just illustrates the importance of community. And one of the hardest parts about COVID is it's been displacing. It's created a lot of isolation and loneliness. But I have a small group of guys that I meet with every year and being another leader is about my age or a meeting with seven other guys who were 25. And we met for our first time this past Friday morning at 6.30. And I guarantee you we're going to go a lot farther together than if any one of us were just trying to do it on our own. And so if you don't have something like that, you're just not going to make it that far. I mean, think about Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Certainly at one point, one of these guys said, I'm sick of squash. I want a steak. And he starts drifting over to this grilled steak like, dude, I mean, I can have all I want. And one of the other guys says, hey, we're not going that way. Set up a boundary. So you need some group of people who are training together so that you can make more progress. A sober-minded resistance. Number two, we must humble ourselves, verse 6 here, Humble ourselves under, circle that word, under the mighty hand of God. When, when you humble yourselves, you're, you're getting under something or someone else. I'm under the laws of this nation. I'm under the rules and regulations in this business place. I'm somehow putting myself under. That's what humility means. I'm under someone. I'm under something. And in the Greek here, it's hupotheo, which is a nice way to say it. Hupo, under. Theo, God, I'm hupotheo. I wake up this morning and say, Paul, you're hupotheo. 
You're under God. I, I've, I've willingly, willingly put myself underneath His ways, His words. But Satan knows, oh, he's good at this scheme. He knows our hearts. He knows my heart. He knows we don't like living under. Oh, we don't like it. But we love living over. But he knows, he knows we don't like living under. So he, he comes in in Genesis chapter 3. Repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1, we read this phrase, God saw that it was good. He, he makes something and he says, I saw that it was good. Day one, day two, day three, day four. He keeps making these things and at the end he says, I saw that it was good. Or another way to say it is, I judged that it was good. In other words, he's saying to creation, this is what's good. I'm not just seeing it and saying it sure looks good. He's saying, this is good. I'm the judge. I'm the, the, the one who has all authority. I have the knowledge of good and evil. So I know what's good and I know what's not good. And I'm telling you, Created beings, this is good. I know it. Trust me. And as humans, we're supposed to live under God and say whatever God says is good is good, and whatever God says is evil is evil. And Satan slithers into this scene. He plants a little seed of suspicion in the mind of Adam and Eve. Did God really say? See, whenever you hear that phrase, that's trying to get you to move from one country to another. Hey, I knew you grew up in the church and that's what God said, but did God really say that? That's a beckoning to come to another country. Satan's opening line. He says, when you eat of this tree, when you get out from under the word of God, then you will be like God. What is it? How does it conclude? Knowing good and evil. And I want you to hear what, he, what the scheme is. Paul, when you get out from underneath God's Word, you're authoritative. You get to judge what's good and evil. And that totally captures our current culture. I'm completely authoritative over myself and I get to decide what good and evil is. I don't have to live by God's definitions anymore. And if I look at something and it feels good to me and it feels right to me, then I say it's good. It doesn't matter what God says anymore. What a scheme. And he's trying to move, he's trying to move Adam and Eve away from that country into a, a far country, away from God. And unfortunately, they, they fall for a scheme. Again, don't think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil having some sort of special fruit. Like, oh, this was the fruit. No, it's the tree. The tree is a boundary. They got away from the boundary. They got out from underneath God's Word and they got devoured. Here's, here's Satan's scheme. Adam and Eve, Paul, get out from underneath the boundary of God's Word. You become the authority. You become the judge. And then you can do whatever you want. And you can call it good. I was several years ago having lunch with a friend who had a work relationship with a guy who was starting to ask some questions about Christianity, somewhat skeptically, but at least he was engaging in the, in the content. 
And he thought it would be helpful if I came along to a lunch with him. So the three of us go to this cafe, and we're sitting there, and a nice waitress is serving us the sandwiches and the drinks, and we're just having this conversation about Christianity. How do you know if it's true? How can you trust it's true? What do you believe in? What do I believe in? And somewhere along the conversation, we got into good and evil. How do you know what's good and evil? You've got to have some sort of boundary, some sort of place marker to say these things are good and the things on the other side are e- evil. And if you don't have God, even if you're not thinking of the Christian God, if you don't have some ultimate authority, how do you know? Because then you just become the ultimate authority. And I think we can agree, can't we? Let's imagine this guy's name is Joe, that, that there are some boundaries. Like There are some things that are good and some things that are evil. He's kind of like, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I mean, at least let's just, let's just agree like what Hitler did was evil. Yeah, that definitely, that's not good. So, but how do you judge that? That's what I was just trying to get him to think about. And as we were having this discussion, the waitress would circle back around our table. She was interested in the discussion. And we were having that discussion about Hitler and what he did was evil to exterminate six million people amongst other horrors. She puts down a plate of food and as she walks away and she said you can't call what Hitler did evil and she walks away how do you get there so you get into a different country and she believed she was completely autonomous and authoritative and she got to decide what's good and evil because she wanted that for her own life she had to assign it to everybody else. So if Hitler does what he wants to do and thinks it's good, then it's good. Now that's an extreme example, but I want you to know this scheme of Satan, oh, it's powerful right now in your own life. Certain rules, certain ways we're supposed to operate in a marriage or in a nation or with, with each other, that are good and some that are evil. But we have a culture that wants to say, whatever I decide is good, is good. This temptation to, to walk away from God's word, it, it captured the first Adam. It's one of Satan's favorite schemes, and you know it is because he tries to use it against Jesus, what we would say is the second Adam. Remember, Jesus is in the wilderness. And Satan comes to him just like in Genesis 3. It's, it's basically a replay. And he comes to Jesus and say, can we really trust God's word? Can we really trust his word? And I love how Thomas Brooks talks about this moment. He talks about it as bait that Satan puts out in front of us. By this same golden bait, Satan labors to catch Christ. Yet the devil's fire fell on wet tinder. Wet tinder. Why was Jesus' tinder wet? Have you ever tried to start a fire with wet, wet wood? Eh, you don't have much success. And Satan comes down with his fire to question God and what, what question Jesus. And why was Jesus' tinder wet? Because for 40 days he was soaked in training his appetites. 40 days without food, 40 days without his friends, 40 days in solitude, 40 days focused on God. So at this moment, when Satan comes in and thinks Jesus is at his weakest point, 
Jesus is at his very strongest point because he's trained all of his appetites. So when Satan comes in, no chance. He's going to have no chance right here against Jesus. And so I'm wondering. I'm wondering really primarily for myself. Satan has his schemes. And what you would fall for, I would look at and say, who would fall for that? And I would fall for things, and you'd say, Paul, how would you fall for that? Do you know those things? Are you aware of your own heart? Are you aware of the snares that he's setting up? Are you training your appetite so that you can resist? Are you saying, I don't trust my word. I walk by faith, by God's word. So even when I look at things that seem good, I hear God say, Paul, that's not good. And I go His way rather than my way. I wanted to use these last, these few verses here to end us with just a few minutes to pray. So would you pray with me? Lord, You call us to humble ourselves. This is just the hardest first step. We just, we just don't want to live under We've been hurt by other people who we've lived under, and so it now becomes hard for us to live under your rules, your ways. We, we self-justify in ways that cause us not to be humble. But would you, would you help us to live under the mighty hand of God? All these anxieties that we carry, would we cast them on you? Would you help us to be sober-minded? To just know that we might not even know ourselves well enough. We might need someone from the outside to assess, hey, this is something I see or I don't see. Would you help us to be watchful of an adversary that prowls around promising life but yet devouring us with our appetites? Would you help us to resist? Train our appetites in order to resist Satan's schemes. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the one who came and you were devoured on the cross so that we might live. And then you burst back forth promising life to all those who trust in you. Would that carry us this day, this week, and forevermore? We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.